All right, let's get going, everybody. Grab a seat. So I know, I know it won't surprise, um, it won't surprise any of you, but um, there was a, a time in my life where I was in unbelievable shape, and um, I spent the majority of my high school and college years uh, in the weight room. I was a football player, basketball player, baseball player, and so it required a lot of, uh, a lot of weight lifting. And I realized that in our culture, we've established a lot of different ways that we quantify levels of power. Well, in college, uh, even as a quarterback, it was, it was this. We, we quantified our power uh, by the bench press. And uh, the, the way we would do it is every uh, two-a-days, everyone would check in, and we would have to see how many times we could uh, rep 225 pounds of the bench press. Well, my freshman year, I came in, and uh, I'm sad to say that I couldn't do 225 at all. You know, so you kind of, you know, you kind of just put it, you know, I was able to lift it off the bar, and you kind of like jockey it like you're able to do something and come down and, and, you know, no go. Well, the whole summer between my freshman year and my sophomore year of college, I mean, I I worked hard, man. I was uh, doing uh, push-ups, and I was, you know, benching all that I possibly could. Nervous as all get out, I show up on two-a-days, get underneath the bench. I'm like, all right, like, now's my moment, right? Like, this is my chance. Get the thing off the bar. And I don't, I don't know for how many of, the, of you have felt 225 pounds, but it's heavy. Like, this isn't like lifting feathers, you know? And, and I come down and boom, pop one up. And like, really surprised, you know what I'm saying? Like, one of the closest times I've been to a miracle, okay? And then, and then I bring it down and pop it up again, Right? And so by this point, I'm like, like I'm just done. I, like, this bar is going to land on my chest. I'm going to die. So I just, I just put it up, right? But I watched the coach, and, you know, he writes a little two by me. And all of these numbers quantified how much power all of these uh, teammates had. One of my teammates, a very large man, uh, was able to do it 35 times, okay? So uh, you wouldn't want to meet that guy in a dark alley. But we, we, we find all these ways to quantify power. Now, when it comes to cars... Uh, we quantify power with uh, the thing called horsepower, all right? This is a 2017 uh, Mitsubishi Mirage. This vehicle has 76 horsepower. 76. There are motorized scooters that have more than 76 horsepower, okay? But we quantify power that way. On the other hand, this vehicle has a few more, okay? Now, just so I get it right, this is the Lamborghini LP750-4. It begins at 399000 just in case any of you are interested. And it has, my friends, 740 horsepower. Okay. Now, most of you are rocking vehicles that can come nowhere near that. A lot of Ford Focus in the room. Okay, I fully understand that, and that's great. Uh, Ford's a great brand. The Focus is a good car. Problem is, the horsepower comes up quite a bit short. Can you imagine? Being in this particular ride, choose your color. Maybe you don't like the aqua, okay? Imagine, like, pressing the pedal down in a vehicle that's 740 horsepower. Like, crazy, right? Like, push back in your seat. It would be insane, right? But that's not the only way that we quantify power. We also do it with this, with this equation. Now, <laughs> I'm sad to admit, I have always wondered how slugging percentage is figured out. Seriously. I have never, ever been able to figure it out. I've never looked. I've never asked. And it popped in my mind as something that quantified power. And I, I learned something. Like, 
Like, this was incredible. So I'm sharing the information with those of you who don't know what slugging percentage is. In baseball, it's the total bases divided by at-bats, okay? So you have, you know, if you get a single, it's one base, a double, two bases, triple, three bases, you guys can see, divided by total at-bats equals slugging percentage. Now, who do you think holds the all-time record for slugging percentage in Major League Baseball history? Barry Bonds is number five. Thank you for the guess, but you are wrong. Anyone else? Babe Ruth. Check this out. Babe Ruth, 0.6897. The second closest is 0.63. So, I mean, far above. And he looks like 65 in this picture, still jacking homers, right? Like crazy, crazy stuff. Slugging percentage, vehicles, okay, uh, power lifting, Always that we quantify the level or the amount of power. Uh, if you want more power in a car, you can buy it. If you want more power in your muscles, you work harder. But all of this prompts an unbelievably poignant question. Let's ask it this way. Next slide. How do you quantify, measure the power of Christ? I want to propose to you that this question right here if every single one of you tonight are confronted by God, the opportunity for all of us, all of us, to grow in leaps and bounds through the Holy Spirit tonight is unbelievable. I have now learned that this question sits at the precipice of so much understanding of the character of God. So put this in your back pocket, continue to mull it over, and open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We started this journey through Ephesians a few weeks ago. Tonight we're going to finish chapter 1. So we're going kind of at a record pace, it feels like. We're going to study verses 15 to 23. Really, really anxious to share this with you guys, and here's why. There are certain passages that I, um, that I teach and preach that, um, that convict me more than others. Every passage is convicting and challenging. This passage in particular has, has really, really dug deep within me. And so please know that everything that I'm sharing tonight, I've had to wrestle with in massive proportion. So Ephesians chapter 1, let's start here in verse 15 with these beautiful letters. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now... Anytime you see in scripture for this reason or words like but or and, therefore, you need to understand what came before it. Because Paul is saying for everything that I just wrote, now I'm going to write some more. Well, verse 3 to 14, as we studied, was one of the longest run-on sentences in all of scripture. In the Greek language, there's not punctuation, so there's no semicolons or commas or exclamation points. So literally... All verse 3 to 14 is like one truth after another, just one massive sentence. Instead of reading all those verses, I thought I would sum it up for you. So here goes. Check this out. God has lavished his grace on those whom he has adopted. He has purchased or redeemed and forgiven them through the blood of his son Jesus. All of this we studied in the last couple weeks. The adopted hear the gospel, believe in the gospel, and as we saw last week, are then sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. All of this is a means of praising God instead of being preoccupied with yourself. This is the summary of verse 3 to 14. Now, 
when you look back at verse 15. For this reason, for all of those truths, for the lavishing of his grace, for the being adopted as sons, for the redemption that was purchased by the blood of Christ, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Well, who is the I? The I have heard is Paul. And Paul has heard in a jail cell. He's in Rome, on house arrest, chained to a Roman guard by his foot. And word has made its way all the way from Asia Minor to Rome. And the word is, the people in Ephesus have been faithful. Paul hasn't been there for seven or eight years. The people in Ephesus are loving one another. And so this reaches this jail cell in Rome. For this reason, I've heard these things. And then he adds this in verse 16. Next slide. I do not cease because of all of this to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now here's my question. Why would Paul not cease to give thanks on hearing that the people in Ephesus are faithful and loving one another? Why would he literally say, I'm not ceasing to give thanks? He's saying that because he remembers where they were. When he arrived in Ephesus about 10 years before this, uh, the majority of the land was um, caught up in the occult, caught up in worshiping a statue named Artemis, uh, caught up in the fledgling idolatry that was steering them one way or another. And all of a sudden, Paul comes in Ephesus with a bold, persuasive message. Man-made gods are no gods at all. We see, saw that in Acts 19. He remembers where they were. He remembers how people, households, started surrendering to Lord Jesus, started kicking to the curb the statues, started believing the message that man-made gods have nothing to provide. He remembers where they were. He remembers the salvations. He remembers the disarray. He remembers how disruptive the gospel was in Ephesus. And so when he hears seven years later with a pastor's ambassador's heart that they're remaining faithful, that they're loving one another. Can you please understand how encouraging that would be in a jail cell? The gospel has taken root in Ephesus. The gospel is moving forward. There are more households coming to Christ. There are more people that are laying down the statue worship. There are more people who have stopped worshiping the emperor and have started worshiping the king. So he says, I haven't ceased to give thanks. But then he says something interesting at the end of verse 16. He says that he's remembering you in my prayers. I think we do a great job at remembering sometimes. We'll think of people, people come to our heart, our mind. It's one thing to remember, and it's another thing for that remembrance to bring us to prayer. <clears throat> it's one thing for us to say, oh, that person's nice, or oh, that person really blessed me, or oh, that person this or that, and it's a whole nother thing to all of a sudden have that person come to mind and heart and then begin to pray, especially when you haven't seen them in seven or eight years. Are you kidding me? 
We struggle praying for people that are two inches from our nose, let alone people that are hundreds of miles away while we're in a jail cell. So he says, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I'm stirred by all the things that I've heard about you. Faith and love is stirring. Well, now what we get to watch is a prayer. He says, I'm, I'm stirred to pray, and, and now he's going to write his, his prayer, whether it was a scribe or his penmanship himself. We're now going to watch how this prayer unfolds, this prayer of thanksgiving, this prayer over the church in Ephesus. So let's start here in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, again in the framework of prayer, the Father of glory, may give you, look at this, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Well, he has just said they have faith. They trust God. So why would he say that they, he wants them to have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him? Why does he want that? Because he wants them to have more. He wants them to grow in their understanding of God's character. He wants their knowledge to be deepened. He wants there to be this longing in them that, that maybe I haven't understood the fullness of God. Maybe it's time for me to go deeper. The problem is, next slide, there is a massive, massive difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And Paul recognizes this. And listen, please hear me. You need to recognize it right now. One of the greatest dangers in our culture, one of the greatest dangers in you, is that you think you know God, but in reality, you just know about him. And the reason why that's so dangerous is Jesus says, when he returns, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do this and do that? Didn't we follow you? And I'm going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me. You weren't abiding in me. I wasn't abiding in you. You weren't sealed in the Holy Spirit. You knew about me, but you didn't know me. And I didn't know you. So because of that, I want to shepherd you, care for you in this process as I've, as I've had to wrestle with this question myself. Next slide. Let's look at it this way. What's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God? I want to look at three differences here. First of all, knowing about God, you're phenomenal at reciting facts. Okay, you have book knowledge, you know the right phrases, you know the right statements, you can say them at the right time. Uh, you're very similar in this case to a Pharisee. The Pharisees knew that the Messiah was coming, the Pharisees could quote scripture, the Pharisees knew all the laws about the Sabbath from the Mishnah, and on and on and on. They knew this, they could recite facts. But I want to make sure you understand, just because you are a fact communicator does not mean you know God. The difference, when you know God all of a sudden, next slide, then the beauty is truth is coupled with story and experience. You recite the truth and communicate the truth and you let the world know how that truth has impacted you and completely changed everything about you. It's not just the gospel is good. It's the gospel is good, and it has absolutely changed my life forever. There's a big difference. One's an encyclopedia of scripture. The other is a walking ambassador who has been changed by the power of the gospel. There's a big difference. So you need to start checking yourself. Let's say it this way. Knowing about God 
praise is lifeless. Some of you encountered that here tonight. I'm going to be honest with you. One of my deepest longings, one of the things I pray about often, is I want to be able to gather with you, my friends, my brothers and sisters, the folks that I love so much. And I want to be able to like just to have someone just say the name Jesus. That's it. Like someone just says Jesus. And, and instantly we just break out in praise. Because we don't, we don't need anything else. It's just the simple reminder that we're here to glorify Christ. And I'm not saying it needs to look like that or look like this. But just at the mention of Christ, our hearts would burst open instead for so many of you praise is lifeless. You're like a mannequin, like a robot, like a Christian drone. You show up at the right times in the right places. You go through the lethargic motions. But even tonight as we were singing, you're singing glory and hallelujah and words that certainly have power within them, but they're just coming off of your lips like they're lyrics on a page. That's when you know about God. I can tell you about him, but when you know God, when there's intimacy, then all of a sudden, next slide, there is beauty and praise as a joyful response. Joyful. Joy amidst pain. Joy amidst trial. Joy amidst confusion. Why? Because all we're doing at all times in our praise is responding to God's character. If your praise is built on your circumstance, do you understand how depressing that will be on the day-to-day basis? Because your circumstances ebb and flow. They, they change by the second. The one thing that never changes is the character of God. That's why our praise is built on responding to him and not responding to your day. When you know God, it's this constant reminder of all I'm going to do every day of my life is respond to you, O oh God. And you are unchanging, gracious, merciful, loving, compassionate. And so I will praise you, God. It's a big difference. Lastly and most poignantly, I would say, knowing about God, life is logistically impacted. You got a service to go to now, right? You got some small groups to be a part of. You got some lingo to share. You got some campus ministries to kind of attend. And Oh, you have some cool relationships because they're built around now like church things. There's some logistical changes in your schedule. When you know about God, those things, you know, are impacted. When you know God, when you know him intimately as we've been learning, life is completely disruptive and it is beautiful. It uproots everything that you are. We're far beyond logistics once you know God. Everything changes. The reason why you go to school is for the glory of Christ. The reason why you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend is not to pursue lustful activities, but to uh, share and love and, and glorify Christ. The reason why you have that job, even though it feels so tedious, is to glorify Christ. The reason why you have a car, glorify Christ. The reason why you're in a home with parents, glorify Christ. And on and on and on. There's nothing that he doesn't touch. But when it's just logistics, then uh, Christ is like a salt and pepper shaker. You grab him when you need a little seasoning, when you need a little help, but for the rest of the time, he's off on the side of the table. There's a big difference. Now, having said all this, uh, it's been a long time maybe since someone has asked you this question, but right now, it's, it's time for you to have to wrestle. Do you know God or know about God?
I've shared often here that one of the things I see in our culture, my friends, is that people have just created views of God based on their own understanding. And so they just take their experience, a little bit of scripture, a little bit of lyric, a little bit of this and that, and then they say, here's God. The reason why that's so dangerous is because if it's not the God of the scripture, it's not God in any way, shape, or form. So before we move on tonight, I'm just asking you, would you say tonight that you know God intimately through Christ or do you just know about him? Both of those things have tremendous implications. So he wants us to grow in knowledge. He wants us to deepen that. And then he adds this to his prayer based on this pursuit of knowledge. Look at what he says in verse 18. Knowing God deeper, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened or opened, that you may, look at this, know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. He now shows us three areas that he wants us to know God more in. I've highlighted them here in multicolor highlights, just for our fun here, the green, the yellow, and the teal. Now, I want to simplify this just so our eyes can be drawn to the words. Next slide. Here are the three statements. He wants us to know more of what is the hope to which he has called you, know more of the riches of his glorious inheritance, and know more the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, let's simplify these statements even a little bit more. Know hope, know the inheritance, know his power. Um, here's where I'm at. I believe that we struggle in unbelievable ways knowing the power of God. I think hope we love because it's generally convenient. Inheritance, like what are we going to do without that? Like we need it, we want it. That's part of what our hope is in. But I believe for the majority of the people in this room, and at many times in my life, me included, we don't really know the power of God, know the power of Christ. We know about it. Listen, I can, I can speak all day long about the power of God and the power of Christ and how it's limitless and immeasurable. I can say, listen, I can say the right words. You can sing the right phrases. What I've been asking myself in light of this text, what I'm asking you now is do you know the power of God? Is it so real that you can taste it? Is it so tangible, so near, that daily you're walking in light of it? Or do you feel that it's just one more aspect that's out here somewhere? I want to help shed some light to this next slide. Why do we struggle so much to know his power? Walk with me through this. The first, and I think primarily, is Let's just be clear, we're afraid of it. Let me tell you why we're afraid. I'll speak for myself. Maybe this includes you. I'm afraid of the true, genuine, immeasurable power of God because I know at all times it will be a lack of comfort for me. As God's power was moving 
as the church was being established in the book of Acts, do you know what that meant for the apostles? Oh my goodness. They're coming to Christ in an area that is persecuting at rapid pace believers. If you came to Christ engulfed in the power of his grace, it meant that most likely you were going to be persecuted and probably killed. We are so far from that right here in America, and yet we still are afraid of the power of God because it messes with our comfort. It digs in there. It says, actually, uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, here, the power of Christ now is going to call you to get rid of everything, sell of your possessions, and move here. It's going to call you to take this job, not because it's going to provide you for the, uh, with the most money, but because it's an unbelievable mission, missional opportunity, and I'm putting you right there. It's going to call you to move into a neighborhood that doesn't make sense, and you could actually afford a better house, but I want you to move there because I've built all these neighbors around that desperately need to know me. I'm just asking you right now to have a very confrontive face-to-face encounter with God. Are you afraid of his power? Well, if you are, you're going to struggle with it. There's going to be like, I better, I better just, I better keep it at arm's length here. Second reason why we struggle with God's power, to know it, is we view it as a past and future power, not a present reality. Uh, so in the Gospels, Jesus exercised demons. He cast them out. In the Gospels, like the the blind saw, the lame walked, the paralytic that was lifted down through the roof, he all of a sudden was healed. And we can rally around that. Like, look, guys, do you you see God's power? Do you see in the early parts of Acts when 3,000 people came to know the Lord? Like, look at his power. Simultaneously, we look at the future. There's going to be a day. Where he's going to take Satan down forever. Where Satan's dominion and authority and rule will be cast out forever. Where where his power will be surely and eternally seen. And then we kind of are like left in between. Let me ask you. Is God still casting out demons? I'm asking you. Can God still heal Is God still saving? Let me ask you something very, very poignant. Can the, can the addict walk away from his or her addiction? Can those struggling with eating disorders be freed? Can those gripped by the power of an abusive relationship all of a sudden find new worth in Christ? I'm asking you, is that stuff still real? You guys see what I'm saying? If not, what are we doing? Seriously, why are you guys here? What what are we doing? If it's just a past reality that we've come to commemorate, hey, let's celebrate again the 4th of July like something that happened way back when that's never gonna happen again. I'm just asking, how are you living? The reality is he, he is still healing. The blind are still seeing the lame are still walking. I've seen it with my own eyes. Those possessed with demons are still being freed. The power of Christ is far beyond just a past understanding or a present and future hope. It's 
right here, right now. But when you struggle with that, his power just hangs at arm's length. Number three, why do we struggle to know his power? We pray cautious prayers so that we are protected from disappointment. Oh, dear God, I pray that you will allow the sun to rise tomorrow. And then you wake up in the morning and celebrate answered prayers. Thank you, Lord. You answered again. You're so faithful to make the sunrise. God, I'm really tired. Man, I could use a strong seven and a half tonight, Lord. Right? You wake up, to, you wake up the next day, 745. God, like above and beyond you answer my prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. You're, you're incredible, God. Lord, you know I've been trying to pursue this relationship. God, listen, I'm going to send a text right now, and Lord, you'll show your faithfulness if I see those little dot, dot, dots, like almost immediately. Lord, you'll show your faithfulness, God, right? Boom, you send that text. Boom, there come the dots, right? And you just all fired up, and then the sad face emoji back at you right now. When was the last time you prayed for the impossible? I'm just asking. When was the last time? You see, because when you pray the impossible, fully vulnerable, fully vulnerable, God, here I am, fist clenched, next to my bed, pounding on the mattress, praying for the salvation of this person who seems so indignant against you. You put yourself in the place where only God could answer. I'm asking, when was the last time? When was the last time you knocked hard at the door? When was the last time you sought hard? When was the last time you prayed for the impossible? We are very, very, very gifted at praying cautious prayers that fit within some neat understanding of some sort of cultural Christianity where God always answers yes. It's time to wake up, my friends. We struggle to know his power because we would rather be seen as powerful. Casted something here a few weeks ago called the seven. A very simple missional strategy. Dorm rooms, living in your uh, parents' basement, neighborhoods, apartment complexes, doesn't matter. The principle is this. You take seven of your closest neighbors. You pray and pursue one of those neighbors every day out of the week. Very simple. One of the byproducts of the seven that I've been praying for is that you and that I would be brought to the end of ourself so that there would be moments where we would know it's not us. All of a sudden, you pursue that neighbor who hates you because of how you mow your lawn or that one time you were loud or that one time you parked your car incorrectly or that one time your dog pooped in his yard or whatever, right? They hate you. And all of a sudden, you're sitting at your dining room table. You don't even know where from, but you just feel prompted to go outside. Oh, oh, like, okay, Lord, like, I don't, all right, like, I, I, guess, I guess I'll go outside. And you go outside, and look who's there. Boom, that neighbor who hates you. And they wave you over. And you're expecting they're going to right hook your face, you know? Like, is this where it goes down, you know? And you're kind of like, get your dukes ready, right? And all of a sudden they ask you, hey, hey, listen, I know we had a bad run. And like, I just, I was wondering, 
I see something different in you. Could you tell me why? And in that moment, there is no possible way you could say it was because you're awesome. I've been praying that in the seven, in the pursuit of it, you would be brought to these moments where you would know it's not me. It's the power of Christ. There's no possible way I could have opened this door. The Lord did. It's the same reason why I believe God called us to make disciples. It's the same reason why we're passionate about disciple making here. Why? Because you're brought to the end of yourself and pouring into others. It is so hard. Invest your life. Bring others into your life. Pray consistently. Pursue consistently. And there have been so many moments in all my discipling relationships where there is no possible way I can say that was me. I'm pushed back day after day. God, you did it again. God, you showed your power again. God, you saved again. God, you healed again. That's why he said, I chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Why? So that no man may boast. When we want to be more powerful, I'm just telling you right now, you're going to find yourself in a power struggle and a tug of war that you and I will lose all day long. There's only one throne. But we struggle. Now, I've been waiting for this a specific moment for a long time, so I'll share it with you now. Number five. We struggle to know his power because our lives aren't built on full reliance. Agree with me, my friends. A life that is fully reliant on Christ doesn't it seem like it looks a whole lot different than the lives that many of us are living? Full reliance. You see, when a life finds itself not needing food for comfort, not needing a relationship to feel validated, not needing some lustful pursuit or situation to feel loved. When you don't need to wake up and have someone send that beautiful text to make you feel good about your day. When you get to this point in your life when literally, truly, and fully all you need is Jesus, do you understand how much differently that looks than the way we're living? I don't need anything else. I just need Jesus. That's it. I have all in Christ. There's nothing I'm going to gain apart from Christ. Everything else is a byproduct and a joy and a grace. If he gives me a relationship, that's grace. If he gives me a friendship, that's grace. If he gives me a job and a car and a dollar, that's grace, grace, grace. But the only thing I need really is him. That's it. There's literally nothing else that I need. Do you guys understand? We have built our lives around not needing him. Oh, okay, so God, here's the way it's going to work. Uh, I'm going to need you in these three areas, but these four areas, I got. I got it, God. We good? Let's shake hands over the table, little negotiation. Again, I'm going to come to you strongly in these three things because they're convenient for me, and ultimately they provide me an eternal inheritance, which I'm really grateful for. But these, I'm going to go ahead and take my future. I'm going to go ahead and take my pursuits and my dreams I'll figure that out. In the end, I'll say the nice words to God be the glory and not mean a one of them. 
Now, every single one of us, every single one of us, myself included, I pray you are being confronted, confronted with the Lord right now. Why? Paul's going to tell us. He's going to make clear. He has just said, next slide, he has just said at the end of verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? He's just said, I want you to grow in the knowledge of his immeasurable power. Well, thankfully, in his prayer, he's going to grow us in the knowledge of his power. Check out verse 20. Hello, somebody. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Can you picture being chained to a Roman soldier on house arrest in Rome? And all of a sudden, the heart palpitations as he speaks about the resurrection. He begins to write about the power of Christ. All right, you want to start learning about the knowledge of the power of Christ? Then let's go ahead and start with the resurrection. His power had no limits. His power was immeasurable. The Romans thought they won. The Pharisees thought they won. The Sadducees thought he was dead. Some of his own followers thought the movement was over. And the one thing that seems like the greatest curse that no one can beat in death All of a sudden, on Sunday morning, the earth shakes, the tomb rolls empty, and the angel says to the visitors, who are you here to see? Because he is risen. He's conquered death. It's over. Death doesn't have a sting anymore. Sin's power is done. Listen to this, church. The curtain was torn in two that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple and everybody else. As he dies, the curtain tears. Why? Because it's finished. His power is limitless. It's immeasurable. And it begins with the resurrection. But it's not just the resurrection. Paul also makes clear that it's when Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He sits on a throne. He didn't just conquer death. He didn't just raise him from the dead. But then he ascended him to the most high place, the right hand of God the Father. So that, you ready for this truth? Check this out in verse 21. So that he would be far above. Somebody tat this. Do something with this verse. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And just in case you thought there were exceptions to that, please read that again. For uh, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His power is limitless in comparison to the enemy. His power is limitless in comparison to our flesh. His power is limitless in comparison to the rulers of the land, the kings of the era. His power goes far beyond anything imaginable and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come, in the age eternal. Okay. Can you picture him writing this? Can you picture the churches reading this? Man, Paul really cares a lot about us. He wants us to be so utterly consumed by the power of Christ that it changes everything. So he ends this awesome exhortation and prayer with this. Next slide. 
and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Here we are, the body of Christ, which is his body, verse 23 says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When you're the fullness of something, that means there is nothing else that needs to be added. So, I share with you before, this passage has opened me up, ripped me apart, got to my core. I've struggled with this a lot, and here's the reason I've struggled with it so much. It's because of this question. I've been asking myself, how do I quantify the power of Christ? Everything else around me quantifies power. And it's like, if you want more of it, you can buy it or work harder for it. What I'm saying is my mind struggles so much with something that maybe can't be quantified. You guys understand what I'm saying? Because again, everything around me is, well, if you get this grade or if you have this much in your, you know, in your arms or if the, the car has this much or everything around us, quantified, 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 power can be seen. And so what's happened, I believe, is that I and my guess is some of you have quantified the power of Christ just like this. The power of sin has limitations. It's bracketed. It has a beginning and it has an end. Agree? It's beginning in the garden. The power of sin one day forever be conquered. It's bracketed. And so I, I think about the power of sin and, and I know that. Like it's, it's going to have a, an end. There, there's a time coming. I think about the enemy. I think about Satan. I think about how limited his power is. I think about how he's right now the ruler of the kingdom of the air, as Ephesians says, but there's going to be a day where his rule and reign will forever be done. It has limits. I know my flesh has limits. It fits within the parameters. Um, my flesh won't overcome the power of Christ. I know that. But then I've had to wrestle with the tough question, which you must wrestle with right now. Is the power of Christ in these same brackets? It's limited based on my understanding. It's limited based on my fear. It's limited based on my belief. It's limited based on my shame. It's limited based on how I feel. And on and on and on we go. Ultimately, the power of Christ is really based on me. Do you see what we've done? The same power that Romans 8 says through the Holy Spirit resides in us who raised Christ from the dead. We have lessened to our feelings. We've lessened to our shame. We've lessened to who we're not and not to who we are. Now, what happens? 
When the power of Christ is real. When the brackets are gone. Please hear me. You run to Jesus. There is no other place to run. And you don't just run to him. I don't just run to him when it feels right or when it's nice or when it's convenient or when it's prescribed. Because you know he's the one that holds it. He's the one that that, that has the power. He can change the effects of what seems like a broken marriage and heal it. He can take my addictions and cause me by his power to be free. He can take the noose of my judgmental heart and give me a heart for people like I've never seen. He can heal my mom of cancer. He has the power to change the whole direction of my life, which feels like it's headed completely to myself. He still has this power. And so we find ourselves never-endingly running to Christ. Listen, what if we were able to do that together? What if this church, this body, our, our hearts, our friendships, our relationships, what if we just said together, listen, we want to encounter the power of Christ, and so... We're going to stop running anywhere else but Jesus. We're going to stop running to the powers that have limits. To the powers that will fail. And we're going to start running to the one who has immeasurable power. Can I ask you what would happen in your life, my friends? Uh, Just about every one of you here tonight has something. It's gripped you. It's holding you back and you have withheld from just saying, here, Lord, because you fear your identity without it. You fear your identity without pornography. You fear, listen, your identity without that relationship. You fear your identity without that notoriety or without that pursuit or that degree. What if tonight we all just ran to Jesus? Here, Lord, you have the power to change my heart. You have the power to heal these wounds. You have the power to take this addiction from me. Here, Jesus. And the people that desperately need to be rescued, the people that know they have nothing else but Christ, will then run to him. Run away from themselves and run to the one who has no brackets. So tonight we come celebrating this ancient meal. Jesus broke the bread knowing that we would be here tonight. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. You have no other hope but me. Stop running anywhere else but me. And then he held up the cup. The blood of Christ would be spilt just hours later. And he says, this is the 
blood of the new covenant. Take and drink and do this in remembrance of me. At the moment you believe you have nothing else but me, there is life. And so run to him. Seriously, run to him. Years and years and years of a lack of reliance, some of you are realizing, and guess what? He says, come on. Enjoy grace, which is yet one more aspect of my immeasurable power. Bring him your life. This table is for every believer. Let's come and celebrate the immeasurable power of Christ. Come on.